Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Grief Growers, I am also setting sail on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise to join me and a boatload of other grieving hearts as we travel to Haiti, Jamaica, and Mexico. Go to www.comingbackcruise.com where you can sign up to receive more information on the cruise's sail dates, grief presenters, and onboard activities. I'll see you on the open seas. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to life reentry practitioner and health educator Marnie Henderson, whose husband Tyler died of a brain tumor in 2013. Also on the show today, I'm asking you a grounding question you can use in the aftermath of loss. What is still true about me? I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Before we jump in, I just wanted to give a quick reminder that my monthly private hangout for $33 a month or more Patreon supporters is happening this Monday on June 25th at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I host these events once per month, and they are an exclusive place for the biggest supporters of this podcast to get an hour's worth of one-on-one off-air time with me. So if talking off-air is something that really resonates with you, if you'd like some one-on-one advice, maybe to answer a question, to get a book recommendation, or uh, help with a griever in your life, head on over to patreon.com slash Shelby where you can pledge to support this podcast at the highest level, which is $33 per month. When you pledge, you will get instant access to all of my hidden posts on Patreon. They'll be instantly unlocked for you, including an access link to join us for this month's Google Hangout. And I will see you there on Monday, June 25th. One more note before we get to the top of the show this week, and that is I am so thrilled to welcome fellow grief grower Kate and her fiancé on the Bereavement Cruise 2019. I launched the news of my involvement on the Bereavement Cruise on the June 6th episode of Coming Back, and I am so excited to have a listener of this show aboard the ship. As a reminder, you can always find out more about the Bereavement Cruise at www.comingbackcruise.com, or you can also go to my website, shelbyforsythia.com, and click the announcement bar at the top of the page for more information. Now on to today's top of the show. All right, everybody. So this week, I had the opportunity to sit down with our guest, Marnie Henderson, and I asked her a question that I've asked myself in my own loss that I wanted to share with you if you haven't asked it of yourself already, or maybe you haven't thought to ask it of yourself yet. And that question is, 
what is still true about me? I really like this self-inquiry after loss because so much of grief is focused on what we've lost and what we're losing, whether what we've lost is a person or a pet or a relationship or a sense of home or money or trust or security. A lot of grief and a lot of grieving really zooms in on the holes in our lives, the things that are no longer there. Grief has a tendency, and the nature of grief actually, is to make us really, really aware of what we're lacking now that we've lost something. And that can be really, really overwhelming and and all-consuming to just be sitting there taking stock of how much you've lost. So in taking a second to ask, okay, what is still true about me? It's kind of like taking a breath and and feeling around for your foundation again. Where is there still ground underneath you? Who are you at your core? What will always be true about you and your life, no matter what happens in your world? In talking to Marnie, and you'll hear this later in our interview, she said something that was always true about her is that she is a survivor. Since the day that she was born with complications and diagnoses, she has been a spirit that has insisted on living. And not just insisted on living, but on surviving and on thriving as well. And for Marnie, in the days and the months and the years after losing her husband, that knowledge, that truth is a pretty cool piece of information to hang on to. Asking this question of yourself, what is still true about me? It doesn't stop the world from spinning or falling apart or collapsing around you. But what it does is it helps you zoom out just far enough to see that there's about 5 to 10% maybe, or even 1% of solid ground that you're still standing on. You have not lost everything. For as much as you have lost, you have not lost everything. So for me, in the wake of losing my mom, I asked myself, what was still true about me? And for me, it was the fact that I am a writer. I have written stories since I was a little, little kid. And for as much as the public school system tried to suck the joy out of it, I majored in communications and copywriting in college. And when my mom died, I used writing and journaling as a channel for my grief. What remains true about me is that I have a powerful voice that can be written or spoken, and nothing that I ever will lose or have lost can take that reality, that truth about myself away from me. After my mom died, I still had my voice. This is what is still true about me. That was something I didn't lose. My ability to write. And so using it through writing and speaking on this podcast was and still is a really vital part of my coming back. I'm going to pause here for a second and interject some fun uh, into this exercise as well. And that is the things that are still true about you can be really, really light and silly as well. So some things that are still true about me in the aftermath of my mom's loss are Broadway musicals still move me to tears. I will never, ever, 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 ever like the taste of vinegar in anything. I am most comfortable with no shoes on and my total bare feet. And morning is my favorite time of day. So these things that are still true about you after loss don't have to be 
related to your grief. They don't have to help you through your grief. They don't have to do anything in relation to your grief. Literally, what is still true about you? These are just pieces of information that continue to be reality. They carry forward through your loss. They're not lost with your loss. So when everything is falling apart and crumbling and when the waves come, what is undeniably true, no matter if it's really profound, I'm a writer, I've always been a writer, I'm a survivor, I've always been a survivor, or I really like getting up in the morning, like I I just do. What still makes you laugh? What are your habits or your quirks? What is unique about you that has always been and always will be true, no matter what? And who are you at your core? This is a really brief top of the show, Grief Growers, because I want to pass this question off to you. What is still true about you in the aftermath of your loss? You can let me know over email, shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. You can join the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook if you're not there already. This is the private Facebook group and let us know there what is still true about you in the aftermath of your loss. Or you can also join me live on Facebook on Monday, June 25th at 1 o'clock p.m. Central. I would so love to see you there and know what is still true about you in the aftermath of loss. What is carried through? What remains in the undercurrent? What is that 5%, 10%, even 1% that you're still standing on? All you have to do, grief growers, is like my Facebook page, Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up is my conversation with Marnie Henderson, who became a widow in 2013 when her husband died of a brain tumor. After a long time spent in the cocoon of grief, Marnie has ventured out into her new reality with hard-earned wisdom, strength, and passion. She brings forward a desire to live life with a deeper heart connection, not only with herself, but with others as well. She tries not to take herself too seriously, but when she does, she can count on her two-legged and four-legged kids to keep her laughing. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm so thrilled to have a life re-entry practitioner, among many other things, uh, on the show with us. If you've been listening to Coming Back since the very first set of episodes, probably within the first five episodes, I shared some of my favorite resources for Coming Back and Christina Rasmussen's work, who trains Life Reentry Practitioners is one of my all-time favorite books for coming back. So I'm really excited to have you here on the show. Uh, Marnie, if you could please uh, start us off with your law story. So in 2011, uh, October, we uh, received the phone call that uh, my husband had a brain tumor. And it actually ended up being a glioblastoma, stage 4 tumor. And we spent the next 15 months as a family, uh, every moment together. I have two uh, boys. They were um, eight and 12 at the time uh, that he passed away. And we actually brought the boys home and did online schooling for those 15 months so that we could uh, live as much as we could in that amount of time. And then January 23rd, 2013, he uh, passed away. And as with so many of us, when we experience loss, our lives completely 
fell apart and there anything we thought we had prepared for uh, was not enough. So that was uh, five and a half years ago. And uh, my oldest son just graduated from high school and my other one starting high school. So our life is, uh, is very different today. And so that is my life changing moment of loss, losing my husband who I had been in a relationship with since I was 17. So very much of how I functioned and how I lived was through him. And, uh, I was 39 when he died and um, did not think that was part of my life's plan. I thought for sure I was going to grow old with him and watch my grandchildren grow up. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've, I have the widow status, although that changes uh, the, the name, the identity of, of that. And um, so here we are. We're still here alive and kicking five and a half years later. I'm really interested in the decision that you made as a family to pull your kids out of school and to Mm -hmm. live life as close Mm -hmm. together as possible. Um, Where did that decision come from or what conversations kind of led up to that? Everything seemed to simplify to moments. Uh, Time became very precious. And we were told right off the bat, this was an incurable disease. We never lost hope, but uh, the statistics were in front of us. And honestly, I wanted to focus my energy on being with my husband and my children being with my husband. And they did try to go to school for the first couple weeks. And we found that they just were not present. They weren't able to really focus at school. And we realized that, well, fortunately, my mother is a teacher and my father is a social worker. So when I called them both and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing, what do you think? They both said, absolutely. This is real life. Mm. They will always be able to catch up with school. But this moment right now, this is real. This is, they won't ever be able to learn this in school. And so, uh, they, we did, and it was actually really neat because my husband was able to help them with their studies. We took some trips. Uh, we, he was a much better teacher than I was. So it allowed, uh, that sweet bonding to happen with everyone. So I am, I am so grateful we chose to do that because the time ended up being so short. We packed, it feels like a lifetime into 15 months. I'm so fascinated by your and your husband's decision to involve your kids in this because so many people want to keep their grief, keep their pain, keep their Mm -hmm. mourning separate from the lives of their children thinking that, you know, if they do, it will somehow cushion them from feeling bad, feeling worse, you know, having trauma or negative memories that they hold on to. Um, But with your family, it's like, oh, we're going to all jump into the deep end of the swimming pool together. (laughs) Um, And I, I think it's so wonderful. And I think it's something that so many other families should do. And I guess I'm really focusing on your kids here. But what did you tell them about your husband's brain tumors about how he would 
like slowly or quickly disintegrate? Like what to expect? That was a journey in itself because um, when there started to be physical symptoms, changes in his personality um, with the brain tumor, um, we had to be upfront and open. So I suppose it, it was part of who we were before. We wanted to be transparent. It was real. And we did run up against some hesitation from other family members. Um, they thought we were being too, giving them too much. And we did have the other support that said, but this is, this is real. This, um, and that allowed us to be fully present as a family with each other to the point where we could joke about Tyler uh, having a tumor and uh, chemo brain and, you know, yeah. And um, there were, we have some really funny stories about how the boys would say that's dad's tumor, you know, using the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, accent (laughs) (laughs) because we learned that it was dad's tumor it wasn't dad you know he wasn't the cancer the cancer was in him but the tumor was creating the personality change and so and we shaved his head at home and when we shaved his head we left a big like you know, round circle of hair on top of his head and, you know, poked fun at him. And um, he was in for the ride the whole way. And we, it also became a very spiritual journey for my husband that was very personal for him. And so the, all four of us ended up in counseling before as as he was dying the boys did art sanctuary therapy uh, because there's not really anything they can talk about at the time um and so when it came to the end uh, unfortunately it was hard for my oldest son to see he was having his major seizure that was that actually um ended up being what how he died two days later. My son was there uh, with the seizure, helped call 911 and, um, and then came to the hospital. And my youngest son actually stayed with me. He slept for two days at the hospital holding his dad's hand. And um, they were both there. The one time I will say, they finally said, Um, And this was when it was imminent that he was dying. We were in the hospital and hospice was there with us. And they, they knew the amazing hospice workers knew it was within probably um, an hour. And I asked the boys, I said, it's time. Let's come in the room. And they both looked at me and they said, no, mom, I don't want to be in there. And I had to respect that. And so we sat outside the door and hid under our family blanket and we kept it cracked. The door cracked open just a little bit. Uh, And then the nurse um, came and got us and um, the boys came in and saw their father and dead. And a lot of people have said, why did you, why did you, 
let the boy see their father like that. And, and I suppose it was a split second decision, but they we've never regretted it. Those boys haven't because they clearly saw that their father was no longer alive. He was no longer in his body. It, they couldn't feel him physically and um, as painful as that was, there was a closure, not immediately, obviously. I mean, there, there started a whole different path of pain, but um, so they were there part of the process all the way to the end. And it wasn't always easy, but um, yes, we were very transparent. Yes. I've never had anyone acknowledge that. So thank you actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it's so important. And, and what's coming to mind right now is a quote from one of my previous podcast guests, Julia Samuel, who wrote a book called Grief Works. And so many of her clients express anger at their parents regarding how they handled the death of their parents, so a, a parent spouse. And she said, no one has ever expressed anger about being involved as a child. All the anger comes from having it hidden, not being invited to a funeral, not being allowed to go to a memorial or even see that their parent is dead or has died. Like there's a lot of, you know, these are moments, you said it earlier, these are moments that we cannot get back. And so if we turn our lives into these series of moments, we for as much as so many of them are joyful, we're also agreeing to invite ourselves to every single one of them. That's hard. Oh yeah. And yes. That is hard. Yeah. But, but good on you for, I mean, not only bringing your kids along, but acknowledging they're not wanting to be involved mm -hmm. and then acknowledging their desire to be involved mm -hmm. because that's, it's, I don't, there's something about you honoring their autonomy as people and having separate relationships with their father than you did with your husband. It's a different kind of relationship there. And it's like, you tell me when you can't take it and we'll honor that yes. because it is, it is hard, but there is something to be said as well about, you know, seeing their dead body, especially between eight to 12. There's another episode of the podcast I did about understanding of death at different developmental stages as children, but especially for kid kids under, you know, 13 to see someone dead. It's like, okay. So it, it stops these stories of, you know, they're just sleeping or one day they'll come back or they're in heaven with Jesus and we'll see them again someday. Like all these other, you know, kind of fantasy things that can almost hurt kids more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just honoring that huge space of like, I'm going along for this ride, my husband's yeah. going along for this ride, and we're taking the kids with us. Like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> like, wow. And that, that's, wow. yeah, we did. And because, and it's ironic because my, one of my greatest fears uh, as my husband, we were aware that he was dying was that he would die without me. I, I was his caregiver. Uh, I mean, I, we were attached, all four of us, um, so closely. And I wanted to be with him when he died, holding his hand. And um, interestingly, I, I felt him within those last couple of hours tell me, it's time. 
let go of my hand. It's now your focus is on the children, not, not me. And it was actually hard because I wanted to be the one to be with him when he died. And he was even in his state of, uh, you know, he was unconscious. He, nope. Okay. Times are shifting. <laughs> you, you need to transition to the kids and, uh, and it ended up being beautiful. Um, his parents were with him. And um, so, yes, now the grief journey afterwards, you know, probably isn't as graceful. But when the four of us were together walking with his death, uh, yes. Can you talk about the the weeks, months, even years after, five and a half years after? <sighs> um, I even get... Um, yeah, it's five and a half years. And if I go there to what it felt like those days after and the weeks after, um, a very dark place, the darkest place I've ever been in and numb and um, completely not functioning and devastated. I had someone say it's it's almost as if you look like you've lost half of your body. And I said, well, I have, I've lost <laughs> how I wake up and function every day is, is not here. So I don't, um, I don't, I don't know how to do this. I've never, since I was 17 and my children became honestly the reason to get up each day because they just are there. They are. Um, I love them more than myself. That's the being a parent. It's our heart walking outside our body. And um, so slowly we began to start functioning, whether it was, um, I remember the first time we stepped out of the house and we stepped into the front yard and a neighbor drove by and said, Hey, good job. He'd be proud of you. And I looked at him and I thought, yeah, I, I, I guess you're right. I guess going into our front yard was, <laughs> was pretty brave. Um, but it was the first step and, and, um, lots of panic attacks. My oldest son, um, you know, didn't want to live, uh, I didn't want to live. We, and we got right into our family counselor again. And we just kept, kept going one day, one week at a time and kept talking about what was going on. We were very vocal about it. And, um, and then we take another step and we, they went back to school. And that was a whole nother phase of, of, of functioning with our grief because my, my husband was a um, football coach. So my oldest son actually said he didn't want to go to that school anymore because he's going to school and all of the football players are saying, you know, where's your coach t-shirt? Well, you know, oh, you're the kid whose dad died. Oh, are you the football coach's son? <laughs> and... 
he came home and after a bit and he said, mom, I, I, I need to go to a different school. And I didn't understand what he was doing at the time. It scared me actually. And, but I trusted him. And so he, starting his ninth grade year, he went to a completely different school. He asked that I not tell any of the teachers that his father had passed away. He asked that I not tell the principal. He wanted to be Tyson. He wanted to be himself. And he wanted to create his own identity. And I am so proud of him uh, because it ended up being what he needed. Whereas my youngest son had separation anxiety he had to be in a classroom with two or three of his friends. So the teachers actually helped us um, each year keep him. They would place him in a class where he had two or three different friends that were next to him because he was, you talked about the different ages. You know, he, he was eight, you know, nine, ten. And so mm-hmm. uh, we stumbled a lot. And <laughs> um, it's five and a half years later, um, graduation day, oof, you know, those monumental days, right? They, they, um, that anticipatory grief, you can prepare for it. And, uh, it's still painful. I'm still mad he wasn't there on graduation day. And I know my son wishes he was there. So, yeah. I'm wondering outside of, your son's lives, what had to change for you? Were you somebody that felt like you needed a total identity overhaul? Like I need to be somewhere different where nobody knows me as a widow or were you a rally the support like your younger son or were you kind of somewhere in between or it depended on the day? Like I'm kind of like zooming in from your life with your kids. What exactly was this time like for you? That's a really good question. I think I was somewhere in the middle. Um, There were days I wanted to take off uh, and I wanted to go to a place where there was this amazing like uh, nanny babushka that would take care of me and watch over my children so I could just sleep and I could just mourn and I could um, uh, cry because so much of my grieving was motivated for my children to grieve. A lot of times I put my, my grief, I hid it so that I was stronger, strong for the boys. Um, my journey ended up being that I completely am rediscovering myself And that's been scary and it's been exciting. And some days I am this fierce woman with an amazing Wonder Woman cape standing on top of a mountain. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. And other days really want that, you know, babushka grandma to come and just hold me and tell me that my boys are going to be okay and to just let it go. So what's happened from that is, yes, I, I, am, I am very different than I was before in the sense that I would say I felt like my marriage and my life was like a fairy tale. And uh, because I was 17, 
I, I never thought uh, as none of us do. I never thought I would, he would one die at such a young age. And then two, I would be a widow with two young boys. So from that, I have grown into a woman, I would say probably much more of a um, realistic woman who has knows that death is now a part of life and and I will survive. I am surviving and my children we're doing actually more than surviving. We're not we're we are stepping into our thriving and we're um so yeah, a lot of friendships have changed and some really awesome new friendships have entered and so it's I am I have been revamping myself. I've had to. <laughs> yeah. All right. Right. I'm wondering, sometimes these pop out uh, in the aftermath of our losses, but are there a few things that you recognize through losing your husband that have always been true? Like maybe, who is Marnie at her core? Always, no matter what. I have always been a very strong survivor. I was actually born when I was born. They uh, told my parents that if I survived, I probably would um, be severely um, have severe brain damage. And so I've always been called stubborn, you know, hard headed, you know, adamant about making things work. And yes, Absolutely. I can survive and, and make it through things. What I would say now is that I understand the fullness of that picture, that there's a softness to that. There's a, there's a tenderness that I, the words I've described, used to describe myself now is I'm tender and fierce. I'm they are the yin and yang of each other. Whereas before I would have agreed with being stubborn and bullheaded. Now I'd say I'm, I'm tenderly fierce uh, because now this heart is, this heart understands the depth of loss and where I did not before. Can you tell us how you take this tenderly fierce heart into your work into your coaching practice yes. into what you do now. I remember there was a day I was actually able to feel the pain uh, around me. And this was in the middle of my grief and it was so overwhelming that on one hand, I realized I wasn't alone in this deep grief. And on the other hand, realized that uh, I, um, I wanted to be able at some point in my life to be able to reach out my hand to be a light because I needed one. 
and I had to create it from myself. And I actually started to try reaching out and uh, finding other widows, and eventually I did. And I would reach out to try and be there for other people and then notice that I couldn't handle it. My heart wanted to reach out to others, but my own inner healing, my own inner wound wasn't um, quite healed enough. And I don't even know if healed is the word. It was the, the wound was still raw. So raw that it's hard. It was, I would retreat back into myself and not want to be around people uh, for days and weeks. And so I kept trying and doing that and finally just stopped. I shut everyone out. And then uh, found this book. Um, second first where I read it and finally learned about the waiting room that it's where we go to protect ourselves it's where it's where grief holds us where it um, it it keeps us and learned that every time I was trying to go out and help other people there was still work I needed to do on myself and, and took the time to do that and realized by me learning to take those steps that there would eventually become a time where I could. And there was, I ended up having a a widow's retreat and um, was able to literally hold the space for eight other widows for three days. I yeah, I still, Wow. Sunday night, I still was, I, I needed to go in my cocoon. I needed to go in my waiting room, but I was consciously choosing to do it. And I would call it self-care, you know, self-care. We, we need to take care of ourselves and re, um, you know, be um, nurturing to ourselves. And so there, there began the first steps of being able to step out and sit next to loss and hold space for it, but not get lost in it. And I think that was a huge shift for me to be able to sit next to grief and loss and that pain and hold the space and not get lost. It's such a big deal. And I think a lot of it is... People often think they have to wait until they're fully healed before they can turn around and start helping other people through similar situations. But in reality, I mean, through the work I found, I suppose, you really only have to be like one or two steps ahead on the road. And it's not one or two steps above. Right. Because then there's a whole illusion of like, a linear know, process. I know something you don't know and there's an inferior like student teacher thing. I'm like, no, I just like am two more months farther into this because of my circumstances. Or I read this book that maybe you haven't picked up yet yeah. or something of that nature. But but so much of, of working with grief and loss too is about being able to get rooted on our own and to have self-care rituals before we step out into the world and say, okay, come at me, whatever you got, I will hold space for it because we need to, to prepare 
ourselves to be those spaces. There's preparation involved. That's one of the best questions that any of the grief growers have ever asked me. Um, I did a Facebook live for a whole hour as an anniversary to celebrate Mm -hmm. one year of this podcast. And one of them commented, they said, how do you, you know, do a Facebook group and do a podcast every week and, you know, just hold all the space for pain, pain, pain. And I'm like, I go off the grid. (laughs) I'm like, I gotta go. Um, Every so often or even daily, like 10 minutes off the grid or, you know, my time on public transit a lot of times is spent just like reading books that I really want to read that uh, just, just things of that nature or like meditation is like my crisis button. If I'm ever in crisis, (laughs) I'm like, I need 10 minutes of total silence and I'm just going to go close my eyes somewhere. Uh, and and it's like hitting a reset button. I'm like, okay, now I can hold space for everybody. And it's, it's fascinating. So I love hearing how other people determined that Mm -hmm. was something that they needed because I think I, I started there before I tried to help, but for you, it seems like you came out and you were so eager and you're like, let me be, you know, let me be involved. Let me, you know, get connected to this. And you're like, wait, 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 I got to, you know, backtrack a little bit and, and, and do some self care. And absolutely. Um, So can you tell us uh, specifically what it is that you do now to serve a, the grief community and be your clients in general and whether or not you have any uh, events or, or special offerings coming up in the future? So the book I read, Second First, uh, by Christina Rasmussen, ended up being such, so the seed you talk about that really helped me to understand what was uh, going on. I uh, received the training with her, the life reentry practitioner. And so... Now I'm able to work with those who've experienced loss in their life and learning what happens with our brain and going from our survival mode to our thriving mode uh, and also learning that it is really worth it to, to lean into the grief, to ask its questions. What is grief teaching me? What is it telling me? And so now I've shifted my focus. I, I was a clinical health educator before, and now I'm totally shifting my focus to working uh, with others in loss as a life reentry practitioner. And it is such an honor. It, it feels like um, it really does feel like a blessing and an honor to be able to stand next to people and in awe of the human spirit. So I still do a, a, a weekend retreat for widows of cancer here in Idaho with an amazing nonprofit. And so um, we play in the water, we do art, uh, we do yoga. So we do that. And then this year, uh, really excited. I'm taking a group to Belize and we'll actually do the life reentry process for seven days in Belize. So we'll integrate all the life reentry steps while we're experiencing this amazing Caribbean, uh, gorgeous place as a small group. So it's a small group setting and really neat adventure. So that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm really excited about it. 
That's incredible. And I think it parallels something that I'm doing on my end here, which is the bereavement cruise. Yes. And that's literally this combination of let's escape and vacation and find joy. Plus let's really carve out time to work on the things that have broken us in half Yes, and find community in them. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I saw because actually what spurred this was my boys and I went on a trip to Belize with his school on a service mission and wow right and I'm like cool school to go all the way to Belize (laughs) like we just went to the zoo (laughs) I know it well it wasn't it was an elective and when my son said he wanted to go I go it was one of those moments where that was probably the other seed was I don't want you to go without me let's all go so I was a chaperone and it was it was the first time I had seen my boys smiling, taking risks, laughing, uh, exploring since their father had died. And here it was. That's when I realized, oh, my goodness, we don't have to live the repetitive daily process of, of repeating grief every single day. And I mean, the grief pattern of he's going to come back. Where is he that, you know, we're stuck. And so I thought, oh my goodness, how fun would this be if we, you know, travel does that, right? That's why the bereavement cruise is so cool. We get out of our, what our routine is and what our environment is, and it opens our eyes. It allows us to see something different that is sometimes a little bit harder to do when we're in our current environment, but um, yeah, stepping out and being around people who are supportive of, of um, they're not afraid of your grief. And they're also going to be your biggest uh, cheerleaders when you choose to do something um, exciting. Yeah. You get a piece of community with you. I love that inspiration story for you too. It's just a moment of knowing like, Oh, that's why. Yeah. Yeah, it was a big moment. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So if, if people want to join you in Belize, is there still time to join that trip for you? There is. We have until July 2nd. Uh, and they would go to my uh, website. It's coalescediscovery.com. And if they go to the retreats page, they'll see the Belize retreat and see all of the daily activities we're doing. And uh, it's it's a small group. So it's in a it's in a it's in a small private villa um, and we have our own guide tour guide the woman who took us to Belize she that's is what she does and so she's actually guiding all of our experiences for us and it's nurturing too all the food is cooked there for us and it's it's a bit of a adventure grief work nurturing a little bit of everything that's beautiful. And again, that website, if people would like to find you, is coalescediscovery.com, correct? Yeah. Yes. Thank yeah. you. So brief yeah. growers, tune into that, coalescediscovery.com to find Marnie Henderson, her retreats, and her work, her individual coaching as well. Marnie, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today and for talking about how to keep your kids involved with grief, because I think that's such a powerful conversation, but also how to be sure to, to honor ourselves in that waiting room first, before we step back into the world again. Oh, thank you. It is my honor. I'm, 
I'm, it's my pleasure to sit with you uh, today, Shelby. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing in our grief community. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Marnie Henderson for joining me this week on the show to talk about the loss of your husband and your upcoming widow's retreat in Belize. Marnie came back by working with a family therapist before and after her husband's death and by reading the book Second Firsts, which is how she became certified as a life reentry practitioner. You can find a link to Marnie's website where you can find out more about her Replenish, Discover, Ignite Widows Retreat in Belize in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, June 25th at 1 o'clock Central Time, where I'll ask you the question, what is still true about you in the aftermath of loss? You can come sail with me and podcast listener Kate on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise by requesting more information at comingbackcruise.com. If this show has changed the way you see grief and loss, go to patreon.com slash Shelby where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some very cool podcast rewards for doing so, including exclusive one-on-one time with me happening June 25th at 7 p.m. Central. If you liked what you heard today, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and by telling a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply ShelbyForsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com subject line podcast. As always, my beautiful grief growers, it was amazing sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.